Hi, welcome to the Strad Podcast. I'm Davina Shum. I'm a cellist and I'm the online editor at the Strad. In my experience as a teacher, one of the trickiest things is how to teach beginner bow holds. When you've been playing for many years, a bow hold becomes second nature and can be a difficult concept to communicate to a new string player. I've had rather mixed success when it comes to teaching bow holds, with some students picking it up naturally, literally, and others not. It's hard, and I think if you're a string teacher, you hear me. I hope. I decided to ask cellist and pedagogue Naomi Yandel about her methods of teaching beginners how to hold the bow. Naomi is based in Cambridge in the UK and is also a music consultant, author and editor. She's written Introducing Theory of Music and the Trinity Theory of Music Workbooks Grades 1-8 to and with Celia Cobb has co-authored the Trinity Sight Reading Books Take Your Bow, Take Your Bow, Take Your Bow and the Top Banana Books. Long-time readers of The Strad will recognise Naomi's words as a regular contributor to our opinion pieces on aspects of string playing, including in our April issue, where she's written a piece about resetting. She chatted to me recently about her strategies to help engage students with the concept of holding the bow. Good luck. Naomi, welcome to The Strad Podcast. Now, long-time readers of The Strad will be familiar with a lot of your opinion pieces, which you have written for the magazine, and a lot of them along the lines of pedagogical and teaching themes. So we're here today to talk about teaching beginner bow holds, which in my experience as a cello teacher for many years myself, I haven't really managed to find a foolproof way of teaching bow holds and I hope other people feel the same. I feel like my success with teaching beginner bow holds has been sort of hit and miss for me. So first of all, what are some common mistakes that you tend to see or common bad habits that students tend to fall into when you're teaching beginner bow holds? Well, for a start, I would just start by saying that I'm in the same position as you in a way because I feel we're always learning about uh, teaching beginners and everybody is very different. However, I think even the word bow hold is a fairly interesting thing because it's more a bow feel, I feel. And so I do tend to start my very beginners off by actually asking their parents not to let them just grab the bow when they get hold of their lovely brand new cello and just saying it's fine if you want to just experiment plucking with pizzicato but I'd really rather before you actually come to the first lesson I'd rather you didn't pick up the bow. So I feel that it's very important to just actually talk about what we feel when we pick up a bow. It's not like grabbing something else really. It's something that really matters. And so most of the mistakes that I see would be because those feelings haven't been absorbed. And I feel that that's very important to pick it up or first pick it up with a certain kind of mindset, if you know what I mean. That's a really interesting point that you mentioned the word feel because personally that's something that I don't really think about until maybe slightly more advanced stages learning 
but maybe I should be thinking about it more in terms of beginners as well because I think a lot of the time people are drawn to what a bow hold should look like right that visual aspect is make sure that this is curved make sure your thumb's not locked but how do you explain for example how something feels to someone that has never done it before (laughs) well I tend to give them the idea that they're going to pick it up as though they were holding something very precious, like a bird's egg. A bird's egg works very well with young children because they know that they're very, very precious and they're easily broken. And everything I do is to do with softness in the feel of the bow. When I place their hands in the fulcrum, is a position where there's a soft thumb and uh, the second and third fingers are coming over the thumb slightly. Um, Then I talk about the fingers falling over the bow like a waterfall. Mm -hmm. And I'm using language, hopefully, that they actually can identify with. As you say, it's a very visual thing once you get the hand placed round the bow, it's actually, you can see whether there's a strain or, or they're not quite getting it. So I tend to reset them a lot. So we'll take our hands away. We might do it with, uh, hold the bow with two hands, which a lot of children find easier because their brain doesn't necessarily separate the one hand from the other. It's very difficult to do two different things at once with your hand so if you one hand is sitting on their knee perhaps and the other one's starting to get the feel of the bow then it's actually much much easier for a lot of children especially when they're young to actually hold it with both hands and think about it with both hands Mm. I do find that quite useful as well because I think with a lot of children and, and students when they're shaping the bow hold at first with just the one hand there's that feeling that they're going to drop it, you know, and, and, you know, you spoke about how it's, it's something very, very precious. And obviously we need to be relaxed once it's on the string, you know, as if you're going to drop it, but the string's going to hold it in place. But I think it's useful holding it in two hands so they don't feel like it's going to drop onto the floor, which is every student's and teacher's nightmare, right? Is it a nightmare if it drops on the floor? This is quite interesting. Well, if, it, if it breaks, though. <laughs> oh, yes, <laughs> yes, if it breaks, if it breaks, yes. But I think sometimes I tend to, if I'm teaching small children, I'll sit on the floor in front of them and I'll be, you know, just making sure that that wouldn't happen anyway. But also I think, you know, sometimes bows do drop and I don't think that's necessarily a fear. I talk about resting the bow on the string not putting it on the string Mm -hmm. so I tend to get the idea that you're resting like on a piece of furniture if you're leaning against it and you're 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 resting into the string and that tends to stabilize it removing the stigma of dropped bows I've dropped my bow many times and I'm a fully grown adult so you know I haven't actually broken a bow like that really I well I, I I broke my bow it was in the first year of my master's degree. I had it upon my lap and then I just tilted one of my knees just by accident and the bow dropped on its tip. It snapped right at, at the weakest point, the thinnest point at the tip. I still have it. It's been repaired, but it wasn't the same. That's quite interesting. I, well, I've not had that experience. I, I have had to actually tell children not to leave their bows on their chairs, which is a classic error. Mm. And they love they love actually coming up with why it might not be a good idea. <laughs> and they also love telling their friends not to put their bows on their chairs. I think they like telling other children 
Miss told you not to do that, so you shouldn't do it. (laughs) (laughs) So we've talked about feeling. Also, the use of particular words, language, is super important. And you mentioned analogies. How do you respond to students that perhaps don't react well to analogies? You know, they they can't imagine holding a precious egg or one analogy that I've used in the past is you know don't squish the tomato how do you come up with a different way of explaining to children that don't respond well to that well I've always found in in my experience that the children do respond well but they might not respond to the analogy you're making and therefore you have to find the right analogy for them. One of my pupils was French and she didn't really, you know, there was language so I, I managed, you know, I'm not brilliant at French, I have to say I've made some terrible errors, but I would try and find something that would relate to that child. It's not always a single one. In fact, it, it hardly ever is a single analogy for every child. Okay, so finding what suits the individual child. I think there's so much of really delving into the psychology of each individual child, isn't there? Because every child's going to have different interests and different upbringings. And it's actually quite fascinating to find out what clicks with one student and what doesn't. For example, I've got one student who is obsessed with dinosaurs. How can you bring that into music making? We talk a lot about pterodactyls and and stuff like that. And one thing I do find that children really like and really get into when they're just starting to use the bow, and that is to actually do their family names in little bows. I don't start them with long bows straight away, but little bows saying the names of every member of their family and particularly their, any pets they have. So they would go Naomi, Yandel on the G string or something like that. And then I haven't had a child yet that hasn't really gone Oh, yes, I know this. And especially with pets and their sisters. And I don't know, I I just find that universally popular. Mm -hmm. So just playing short little bows on an open string, just spelling out the the syllables of of names. Yes, yes. It sort of makes it personal in a way. And people love pets, don't they? You know, they absolutely do. (laughs) Any chance to bring pets in lessons, especially online lessons during the pandemic, you know, pet ambushes. It's always (laughs) always a nice thing. (laughs) Yes, I had some hens come into one lesson. I've never had hens come into a lesson before. They whizzed past and the mother came in trying to catch them. It was quite humorous. Wow, that's a new one. I mean, it's definitely been lots of cats, lots of dogs, the occasional small guinea pig, but I've never heard about hens before. Don't they tend to live outside? Or They do. Know? They'd got in, in the house. <laughs> Clearly. <laughs> <laughs> Fabulous. You've written a piece in a previous issue of the Strad about starting beginners off with short bows. So can you tell us a little bit about the benefits of that? I found it very helpful, really, because I feel, especially with young children, that the bows that people actually sell with cellos are just too heavy and too long, even if you start them at the balance point. If you start them at the balance point, I I can see all the advantages except for the swing in the, the heavy part of the frog and it tends to distort the way the bow moves along the string. So I've just 
become a real advocate of having just a very short light bow for maybe even a couple of years. I mean, my my children are sort of used to it. Then I find later on you can easily move them up to a longer bow and everything's kind of settled down by that time and I, I do find other teachers go oh yeah yes actually I'll try it or and when they have tried it they quite like it because I think it is a big challenge to get beginners to use the whole bow because there's so many mechanics involved in doing one long bow when you have one it's that classic thing that teachers always say you've paid for the whole bow you might as well use the whole thing but you know I guess if you've got a short bow it's a little less daunting perhaps it's less daunting and actually it stops the right shoulder trying to strain round. You often get a, a, a sort of curve at the end where they're trying to use it all and then this comes up and before you know it the shoulder is, is really struggling. It's much easier to keep a bow straight. A bit more lateral motion because I think a lot of students they tend to pull the whole shoulder don't they and then they move their entire body. Um, exactly. I'm moving away from my mic to <laughs> demonstrate this but it just means that they get the basic motion done exactly I do these small bows with children but fairly early on I do like an exercise that's called express train which tends to make use of the idea that trains get faster as they leave the station so I tend to get them on their small bows which they can get to the end of easily without distorting their bodies hopefully I get them to count four beats and get to the end of the bow, then push their bow for three beats and get to the end of the bow, two beats, one beat, and then a big whoosh so that actually they can really be free with their bow and their hand can, it's almost like throwing a ball, everything stays loose and soft. And I just find that they like it. And also I can say to them, actually, on the whoosh. I am so much older than you, but I can move my bow so much faster. And then they get into that kind of freedom of, of really whooshing their bow. And I do that on four beats so that they whoosh off on the down bow and then on five beats. So they whoosh off on an up bow, like a, almost like a plane taking yeah. off from the airport. I do try to get them to do both things, the small bows and the long bows fairly early on. Mm -hmm. Making it into a game as well, making it really fun, natural, and and just having them be able to exhibit a variety of bow speeds without them Mm. necessarily um, realizing it. I've got one question for you that I, I really want to ask you. So as I mentioned earlier on, my success with teaching beginner bow holds is rather hit and miss. We've talked about various ways that you can try and increase that success. How do you stop that age-old problem of a collapsing bow hold, where the back of the hand, instead of pronating slightly on the first finger, they just fall back on the pinky? What's one approach? (laughs) Asking for a friend, of course. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I, I think essentially that when we're teaching beginner bow holds I mean this is personal and and I'm sure other people have got different ways of doing it I try to aim for for balance 
in the bow hold. And if they're leaning back on the pinky, I do two things. I say to them, your bow hold is lying on the settee. Can you please, <laughs> can you please not do it? And they, and they quite like that analogy seems to work quite well. I also I get them to envisage a tangerine or a small ball, bouncy ball in the hand so that it doesn't collapse too much. And the other thing I do, it's a very strange thing, but it seems to work very well. And that is to imagine that there's a little scorpion that's about <laughs> to get their little finger if it lies back. And, it, and it's going to sting them if it lies back. And they like the idea of that for some reason. Yeah. And that tends to make the hand stay balanced. I think anything that you can to actually make it fun. I'm really into gamification, actually, in general, with bow holds and bow exercises. It's a good opportunity to introduce more abstract thinking for children rather than everything being so literal, which... You know, children these days get enough of that, don't they? But I'm, I'm going to try that scorpion trick because I feel like that might go quite well with my dinosaur-obsessed students. So <laughs> I'll let you know how that goes. <laughs> they tend to like a slightly scary things, but not. you have to judge it by the child. You know, a very shy little person might find that a little bit scary. But for, for some children who are more robust, you can see that they're, they're quite up for that kind of approach yeah so I think tailoring to the child's really important yeah so much of it is just reading their personality isn't it thank you Naomi it's really wonderful to talk to another teacher about beginner bow holds and I hope that listeners find your words super useful so thank you so much thank you very much that was Naomi Yandel, and don't forget to check out her latest opinion piece in our April issue, available now. And do check the show notes for some of Naomi's previous articles, including the one on short bows, as mentioned in the conversation. Let us know if you try out any of her strategies. I hope you have some success. Don't forget to head to our website, thestrad.com, to check out the latest news articles and reviews on all things to do with string playing. And if you like what you see and hear, register and subscribe to access exclusive archival content from 2010 onward. We've got 50% off an online subscription for students. And if you're not sure you're ready to subscribe, take out a free trial for seven days. Start reading right away with no strings attached. Also, if you happen to be on Apple Podcasts right now, give us a little review or a rating. Thanks for listening and tune in again soon for another episode. Take good care. Bye.